Hello there and welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode 13, Saint-Germain. Saint-Germain is really one of Paris's very classiest districts. It does overlap a little bit with things that we've talked about in previous episodes. The Musée d'Orsay is there, for example. It's the haunt of some of the writers we've talked about, Hemingway, Sartre and de Beauvre and so on. But there's so much left to say that I'm giving it an episode to itself. So we're going to focus, to start with, on the lovely Luxembourg Gardens. We're going to have a look at two of Paris's best-known churches, which are in this area, Saint-Sulpice and Saint-Germain-des-Prés. Talk about it as being the seat of political power in Paris, because both the Houses of Parliament are here, the Assemblée Nationale and the Sénat. It's very much intellectual Paris still, with its publishing houses and its Institut de France. More about that later. And it's arty Paris too, with museums to two well-known artists, very Parisian-based, both of them, Delacroix and Rodin. So, a bit of a potpourri coming up, but lots of interesting things and all about an area that it is very nice to just wander around, soaking up a little bit of glamour and a little bit of class and intellect and feeling very Parisian. To start then, the quintessential Parisian park, the Jardin du Luxembourg, with its groves of chestnut trees, its octagonal pond, its bandstand, its puppet shows, its charming scenes of children sailing toy boats. It's a place that's fondly remembered by many Parisians and visitors alike. I very much enjoyed a description of it in the book called The Beautiful Walk by John Baxter, in which he recounts his beautiful walks all over the city. His French wife had told him that the Luxembourg Gardens were modelled on the Palazzo Pitti in Florence to which he replied, yes, but that's an art gallery, there are things to look at there. To which she replied, well, yes, but there are things to look at here. And so they went to have a look, and this is what he wrote about it. Quote, Over the next hour, we looked at them. Fountains, flower beds, yacht pond, children's playground, puppet theatre, bee farm, botanic association pavilion, facilities for tennis, chess and bull, not to mention the original model for the Statue of Liberty. So that gives you some idea. But don't think of it in theme park terms. It's very French, very Parisian, classy. These things are dotted about. You happen upon them. But if you want to just wander and think your own thoughts among the lovely trees, you can do that too. The whole project started in the 1620s with the Palais du Luxembourg, a palace built with its gardens for one Marie de Medici, the widow of Henry IV. She was Florentine, so they built it on a palace in Florence to make her feel at home. And she lived there, one hopes quite happily, until the terrible day when her son betrayed her. And that was the end of that. As ever in Paris, the revolution loomed large. What happened to it then? It was seized. It became a prison. Thomas Paine, the Englishman whose radical thoughts were said in part to have inspired the revolution, was imprisoned there. So was Josephine in the days before she became the mistress and then wife of Napoleon. After the revolution, of course, comes Napoleon. What happened to it then? Well, Napoleon liked the Luxembourg. He especially liked the lovely gardens, which he declared were to be dedicated to the children of Paris. Hence its atmosphere as a park or pleasure garden, albeit a very classy one. The building, too, has been repurposed, and these days it houses the upper house of the French Parliament, the Sénat. More about that later. So, you may well just go to wander, but if you want some things to look out for, then one of the main things would definitely be the Fontaine de Medici, the Medici fountain, named after the famous Florentine family, from which 
Marie de Medici originally came. There are statues galore, over a hundred I believe, including famously the Bartholdi statue, which was the original Statue of Liberty, made just in time for the 1900 exhibition, the Exposition Universelle. There are statues of lots of other famous people, Delacroix, the writer Stendhal, Beethoven, Chopin, and perhaps most memorably, because they're clustered all quite close to each other, near the pond, 20 French queens. Some you may have heard of, Anne of Brittany, for example, Louise de Savoie, Margaret of Anjou, who later married our very own Henry VI. Mary, Queen of Scots, is there, because, of course, she was Queen of France briefly before her young husband died. Saint Geneviève is there, the patron saint of Paris. And, of course, of course, Marie de Medici herself, elegant in her lovely ruffled dress with the lace sleeves, tightly curled hair, surveying her territory. The Luxembourg has a literary air as well. We know that Hemingway was there. He claimed to have gone there whenever he was hungry and too poor because he was a starving writer to buy any food. So he'd pop into the Luxembourg, kill a pigeon and take it home and eat it. The German writer, Rainer Maria Rilke, was based in Paris. And he wrote about how, on a lovely warm day, he couldn't get on with any work because there was only one place he wanted to be and that was the Luxembourg Gardens. In fine weather, he wrote, how can I hold out any longer at my desk? It's got a very studenty atmosphere as well, because it's close to the Sorbonne. And the French writer Paul Morand wrote a description of them, saying that in summer, the students to and fro in a lively fashion, as he put it, all afire for life, but how, as the seasons change, so does their mood. In the autumn, he writes, their pace is slower. Among the few dead leaves that the gardens have left for them, they saunter with a sense of pleasure that they do not trouble to analyse. Pleasure, that is the gift of romantic reverie. So nicely summing up the idea that it's a lovely place to wander and contemplate. But perhaps the description that stuck most in my mind is the one written by Hélène Baer, the Jewish student, studying at the Sorbonne in the 1940s. You may remember extracts from her diary, Le Journal, that she kept in the last episode. Some of it matter-of-fact descriptions of the indignities the Jews were subjected to, wearing the yellow star, etc., some of it heart-rending tales of what happened to her neighbours, made all the more horrific by the knowledge that she too would be arrested, but also with moments of sheer pleasure, one of which she describes on a walk in the Luxembourg Gardens with a fellow student, Jean Morvicki, whom she was just beginning to get to know, and to whom, in fact, she wanted the finished diary to be given if anything should happen to her. So writing about that sunny morning in 1942, she wrote, in the gardens we stopped at the edge of the pool, where dozens of toy sailing boats were floating. I know we talked, but all I remember is being fascinated by the sun, glinting on the gently lapping and rippling water, the gracious shapes of the sailing boats in the wind, and above all, the great blue shimmering sky. I was surrounded by a crowd of children and grown-ups, but I was drawn to the sparkling, dancing water. Leave the Luxembourg we eventually must, but there are plenty of other things to look at in Saint-Germain. So let's start with two of the churches, two of Paris's best-known churches, Saint-Sulpice and Saint-Germain. Saint-Sulpice is the city's second biggest church. It's acting at the moment, actually, as Paris's cathedral, while Notre-Dame is out of action after the fire. So that gives you a measure of how important it is. Built in the 17th century, on a site where previous churches had been, dating right back to the 12th century, it's very much a part of Parisian society. 
It is, for example, the church where Baudelaire, the poet, was baptised, where the writer Victor Hugo chose to get married, and where the funeral was held for Jacques Chirac, former president of France. It too, of course, suffered in the revolution, when the revolutionaries were very against the church and religion. It was badly damaged during the revolution, but defiantly over the door, and still there to this day, is the following statement. Le peuple français reconnaît l'être suprême. The French people recognise the supreme being. And it continues, et l'immortalité de l'âme, and the immortality of the soul. So a riposte to the revolutionaries from the church, the idea that religion eventually is going to triumph. If you pop in to have a look, there are two or three things particularly to look out for. To start with, it's known in Paris as the church with the mismatching towers. So have a look at those on your way in. And probably the main reason why tourists might go to visit is because it's a church with three huge Delacroix murals dating from the 1850s. In a little chapel off to the right from the entrance, La Chapelle des Anges. Perhaps the best known of the three is entitled Jacob Wrestling with an Angel. Others come to see the organ, which is massive, dates from the 18th century, was played in fact on one occasion by the six or seven-year-old Mozart, who gave a little concert for the Queen, Marie-Antoinette. Sunday Mass is at 11, and for the 15 minutes or so before that, you can hear the organ being played, and quite often after Mass, at about 12 o'clock, there'll be an organ recital. The square in which the church sits is a large, beautiful, very imposing sort of square, with a huge central sculpture and fountain, and famous these days, to Parisians at least, because it became the subject of a book written by Georges Perec, who decided he would write something about everyday life in Paris, focusing particularly on the little moments, the not-much-happening moments. And in order to do this, he set himself up for 24 hours, I think in over three days in three eight-hour periods, and decided he would write down everything which happened. I've written happened in quotation marks because the point of the thing seems to be that actually he was capturing all the tiny little things that you really wouldn't notice. There's 60 pages of it, and he described it as his writing about, quote, the passing of time, people, cars and clouds. If I quote you two or three entries, you'll get the idea. So on one of these stints when he sat there and noted down everything, he wrote things like, the pigeons fly around the square again, and a 70 bus passes, and the church bell stops. And if you think there might be any drama in the last sentence, I fear not, it was not long after that, He's back to buses, because along came a 69. It just tells us that for Perec at least, the Saint-Sulpice Square is somehow typical of Paris in general. The other church in the area that's very well known is Saint-Germain-des-Prés. Prés, by the way, means fields or meadows, so that's reminding you that when it was built, it was surrounded by fields. It's known as the oldest standing church in Paris. It was in fact originally a Benedictine monastery, to be honest, not much of that remains. I think the tower is still there. The rest has been built since. But its early importance can't be overstressed. Before the building of Saint-Denis, where the kings and queens of France had been buried for centuries, in the very early times before that, it was here at Saint-Germain-des-Prés where they were buried. And also buried here is Saint-Germain, the very first Bishop of Paris. It is still a working church. It's also a venue for lots of classical concerts. So that's another way to see inside and make an evening of it and hear some lovely music. Outside, a little way off from the church, is the statue of Diderot, 
one of the great Enlightenment thinkers, and so no fan of the church. And this is nicely described by an American writer, Herbert Gold, who visited in the 1990s and then described this statue as the one of Diderot, quote, encyclopedist, philosopher, atheist, joy-giving novelist, occasional jailbird, and points out that he's pointing what he describes as a warning finger at poor old Saint-Germain. Saint-Germain is also in many ways a political centre of Paris, site of both Houses of Parliament, the Assemblée Nationale and the Sénat. If you go on a boat trip up the Seine, you'll probably have the Assemblée Nationale pointed out to you because it fronts onto the river, just opposite the Madeleine Church, which is set back on the other side of the river, a short distance away. The two buildings mirror each other. They've both got the classical column look. It wasn't originally built as a parliament. It was built as a palace by Louis XIV, no less, in 1722. He needed a new palace for his daughter, Louise de Bourbon, after her marriage. And this was it. Again, it played its part in the chequered history of Paris. So the first assembly was held during the revolution in June 1789, but not here. It was held at Versailles. After the revolution, however, it was here that the Revolutionary Council, some 500 people, met. They decided on a new constitution and they voted it and brought it into force in 1798 on a particular date that was very important to them, the 21st of January, that being the anniversary of the execution of poor Louis XVI. So he'd gone and the new constitution was here and it was voted for in this building. After the revolution comes Napoleon. What was he going to make of this building? Actually, in a very Napoleonic moves, he both lavished money on the building itself. He had the classical columns added, for example. But he made sure that it had only limited powers. I don't think Napoleon was the most democratic of leaders. And a whole series of ups and downs followed then for the various monarchies and republics, which followed through the 19th century. During World War II, the building was occupied by the Germans. In fact, it became their headquarters, and it was liberated in August 1944 personally by one Philippe de Gaulle, yes, son of General Charles de Gaulle. And today it is the Parliament of the Fifth Republic, the one which dates from 1958. So inside there are five to six hundred députés, that's the word for MP, at work, meeting in their salle des séances, so the main chamber, the meeting chamber, which is decorated with a bust of Marianne, the symbol of the Republic. It's much, much more than that. It's a massive complex with actually several thousand rooms, perhaps the most imposing of which is its sumptuous library, with a five-cupular ceiling, all five domes decorated by Delacroix paintings, which he specially designed to represent the five areas of human knowledge, poetry, theology, the law, philosophy and science. The library is famous too as being a place where some very fragile and important texts are held. For example, the minutes of the trial of Joan of Arc and a set of handwritten manuscripts from the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So that's the lower house, the House of Commons, if you think in British terms. And the upper house is the Sénat, the Senate, with its 350 or so members who meet at the Palais de Luxembourg. They too began life just after the revolution in 1799 when a body got together to be a second house and advisory body and called themselves, rather wonderfully, the Conseil des Anciens, Council of the Ancients. I don't know how old you have to be to get in. Although I don't think there's public entry to the Sénat, of course the gardens surrounding it, the Jardin de Luxembourg, are very much open to the public. 
I do not know if there will always be a sinner. I think there are some moves to say they're rather elderly, rather undemocratic, tend to be right-wing. I think in 2011, for the first time, socialists gained control of the sinner and lasted three years. But apart from that, generally it's been right-wing and they come under some pressure for reform. Watch this space. But it is nevertheless a building that seems very fittingly sited in Saint-Germain, that rather intellectual area with links to the Sorbonne, some of the writers we've already talked about, Hemingway and Sartre, etc., and the area of the city where many of the major publishing houses are situated. In his book The Flaneur, Edmund White writes a nice description of the area as it was in the 1950s and 60s, describing what he refers to as some of the denizens of this celebrated neighbourhood. This is what he writes, Above all, pale young women, all in black, and their gaunt boyfriends in turtlenecks, were presenting themselves to the passing tourists as existentialists, which seemed mainly a matter of despairing conspicuously, carrying around a volume of being and nothingness, listening to Juliette Greco songs, and drinking lots of cognacs. Albert Camus, looking as good as one possibly can in one of those fattening trench coats. Another writer who captured the atmosphere nicely is Anne Gavalda, who wrote a short story called What Goes On in Saint-Germain. Her narrator is a rather typical Saint-Germain lady who works in publishing, of course, where else? And she tells a story which she herself says wouldn't have happened in the Boulevard de Clichy, that's up in Montmartre. It could only have happened on the Boulevard Saint-Germain. The story is full of literary references to Françoise Sagan, to Baudelaire, to places like the Café Lip, somewhere where, as she puts it, you can't possibly read lowbrow romances. You just can't. And one evening she's walking along home when she meets a man, also a rather typical Saint-Germain resident, with his grey polo-neck cashmere sweater, an old one, of course, and patches on the elbows. It is, as she says, a very understated jacket. But she's not fooled. She writes, I can tell it's made to measure. At Old England, the labels are wider when the products come straight from the workshop in the Rue des Capucines, and I saw the label when he leaned down to pick up his serviette. So she describes a romantic evening in a restaurant in Saint-Germain, where they drink what she calls extraordinary wine in great big wine glasses, and eat rather fine food, carefully chosen, how French, to go exactly with the wine, which in this case is a bottle of Côte de Nuit Chambertin, 1986. How French to be so utterly precise. And she describes the wine as being sweet and smooth as velvet. So it all seems like a very typical evening of what might turn into romance, very precisely located in the quartier of Saint-Germain. In case you want to go on and read it, I won't give away the ending. I'll just say there is a rather nice little twist. Also rather fitting in this area is the Académie Française, that venerable and very French institution which exists particularly to safeguard the French language. It dates back to 1631 and it's still going strong. It has 40 members, writers, scholars, who rather wonderfully describe themselves as being the immortels, the immortals. Last time anyone checked, their average age was pushing 80 and in 2018, as recently as that, only five of the 40 were women. They award literary prizes and, most of all, they defend the French language against what the Rough Guide rather nicely refers to as Anglo-Saxon invasion. The Rough Guide writer is also quite amusing on the word immortel because, as he points out, by the time these people are old enough to be members of the Académie Française, they are probably not much longer for this world. 
the writer David Leverbitz, who wrote a memoir of Paris called The Sweet Life in Paris, described their purpose as follows. Within those hallowed plush chambers on the left bank, the definitive dictionary of the French language was started in 1635, and to this day, forty immortels, a name that demonstrates the reverence they inspire, regularly meet and discuss what words should be spoken in France, a decision which can take decades. And, whisper it, we have to say that possibly they are losing gradually the war against le franglais, but they battle on telling everyone they shouldn't be using le shopping or le fast food, and certainly not le feeling or le must. I'm pretty sure you can't get into the Académie Française to look round, but you can get into the Bibliothèque Mazarine, a rather wonderful, very old library, which is on the same site, and which houses several hundred thousand old tomes, a good number of them dating from the 16th and 17th century, history books, religious books, and all housed in a really librarian atmosphere, chandeliers, marble busts, marble columns, that sort of thing. Such a wonderful library, in fact, that one of the French presidents, President Mitterrand, named his daughter Mazarine after this library. And finally, in addition to being intellectual, bookish, political, Saint-Germain is also a rather arty quarter. Don't forget that one of the nearest bridges is the Pont des Arts, traditionally a place for artists to set up their easels and paint Notre-Dame and the Pont-Neuf, or of course for more modern-day artists to make their statement with a coloured padlock. It's an area where Picasso's known to have worked. It's believed that he painted Guernica here, for example, perhaps his best-known painting of all. But particularly, it's a little corner of the city where two artists, Delacroix and Rodin, both have museums dedicated to them, because both of them lived and worked here. We start with Delacroix then, described as a leading French romantic painter. He was very Parisian, born in Paris, lived and worked in Saint-Germain, there's his statue, as I've just mentioned, in the Jardin du Luxembourg, and he's buried across town in the Père Lachaise Cemetery. He's seen as the painter who bridged the gap, really, from classical art to Impressionism. He liked big, bold canvases, he used bright colours, he put a lot of emotion into his painting, and paved the way for the artists who were going to do much more of that towards the end of the 19th century. We've already mentioned that his three murals can be seen at Saint-Sulpice, his most famous work is in the Louvre, so I'll come back to that in the next episode. But for the moment, just mention that there's a wonderful ceiling mural there called Apollo Slaying the Serpent Python, and perhaps best known of all, his painting entitled Liberty Leading the People. Very revolutionary, literally, and a painting that Louis-Philippe decreed was so dangerous that it should be hidden away. His house here in Saint-Germain is now the Musée National Eugène de la Croix. So a good place to visit if you want to have a complete picture of him. Gets a rather mixed range of reviews on places like TripAdvisor. Some people liked its charming neighbourhood and its pretty courtyard garden and noticed, in fact, that there were people there sketching. So if you want to feel a bit arty, might be a good place to go. But one person wrote rather snappily that it was a small, dull museum. Nice garden. But atmospheric it certainly is. You're looking at the artist's home, his own furniture, some of his paintings. Out in the courtyard garden is his studio. There are a lot of his sketches here too, so if you're interested in how he worked and how he built things up, that's what you can learn here. And it has to be said that the writer Julien Green liked it very much. He visited in the 1990s, and after his visit, he wrote of, quote, Old houses, watercolours by Delacroix, Huet, Rinard, Hugo, 
dreams in every direction, this oasis in our century that is so wretchedly devoid of poetry. Hitting back rather nicely at the small and dull quotation. And better known and much, much more visited is the nearby Musée Rodin, originally an 18th century house, the one in which the sculptor Rodin lived after he became well known and rather well off. He set up house here in these lovely gardens, entertained other well-known people, had such guests as the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke, the French writer Jean Cocteau, the painter Henri Matisse, the dancer Isadora Duncan. We've all been here. And it was very much a place close to his heart because towards the end of his life, he said that he would donate his work to the French state, providing it was kept here in this building and that it should be set up as a museum of his work. In fact, he wanted two museums, and the second one is his other house at Meudon, where there is a second, Musée Rodin. This one opened in 1919, and you can visit both the house and, much more importantly, the garden. So in the house, on the ground floor, there's a chronology of his early life. There are reconstructions in one or two rooms of what they looked like when he lived there. And up on the first floor, there are exhibition rooms showing some of his paintings, some of his sculpture and a room dedicated to the work of Camille Claudel, who was originally a student of his and an assistant, and who became his lover, and went on to have an independent life as an artist sculptress in her own right. But the main event is definitely the garden. Three hectares of land, beautifully laid out, dozens of sculptures that you can just wander around discovering. Let me just briefly mention four of the very most famous ones to whet your appetite and inspire you to go. The piece of work which made his name, and in fact became the inspiration for much of his later work, was a huge sculpture called The Gates of Hell, based on Dante's Divine Comedy, and taking as its theme a sentence from Dante's work, which Dante said was written over the gates of hell, and which says, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. Two of Rodin's other most famous works, The Thinker and The Kiss, both owe their heritage to to this piece of work, The Gates of Hell, in that they are both figures which originally appeared on it and which were then taken and redone on a much larger scale. The thinker, which was supposed to be really the focus of the whole thing, was a representation of Dante himself, leaning forward, looking over the circles of hell and meditating on the work that he had just created. So very much a picture of a man lost in thought, but a big, powerful man who seems capable of any sort of action, but who, for the moment, is contemplating. Now it's one of the most famous sculptures in the whole world, I would say. Originally done by Rodin as a gift to the city of Paris. Originally it was put up outside the Pantheon, in this area of the city, but it was moved eventually to the garden of his house. And significantly, there's a second copy of it which he made, which he requested should be placed on his tomb, and which you can see then on his grave at his house in Meudon. So that's how important this sculpture was to him. The other famous sculpture which comes out of the gates of hell is the kiss, depicting another scene from Dante's work, a scene in which an Italian noblewoman, one Francesca da Rimini, is depicted with her lover Paolo. Francesca, in fact, is married to Paolo's brother, her husband Giovanni, but she and Paolo have been reading Lancelot and Guinevere together and they've fallen hopelessly in love and are just about to kiss for the first time when they are discovered and killed by Francesca's husband. So very much a sculpture which captures one particular, very precise moment. 
as does in fact another of his well-known sculptures which you can find here, the Burgers of Calais. This is a sculpture of six figures, originally commissioned by the town of Calais as a memorial to one of the most important moments in its history. The town was under siege, the people inside were starving because the English outside surrounding the city wouldn't let anybody in or out, and finally, after 11 months of this, Edward III, the English king, made an offer. He would spare the people of the city, he said, if six of its leaders would surrender to him. They were to walk out wearing nooses round their necks, an indication that of course they were about to be hanged, and carrying the keys to the city. Incredibly, six of the town leaders agreed to do this, and Rodin's work captures this very poignant moment when they're coming out, they're defeated, but they're heroes, they're willing to sacrifice themselves, and they know that they're about to die. Actually, in fact, it's they think they're about to die, because as history tells us, Edward reprieved them because his wife, Philippa, pleaded with him to show them some mercy. But the sculpture captures the moment before that happens, and shows all these very conflicting emotions. The original version is still in Calais. French law says that up to 12 casts of Rodin works can be made, and there are others, one of which is here in the garden, another in London, in Victoria Gardens to be precise, just behind the Houses of Parliament, and there are others in Washington, Berlin, Tokyo. It's a statue that's gone worldwide. So there we have it then, all the different aspects that come together to make Saint-Germain what it is. One of Paris's really very classiest districts. Next week's episode is going to focus on just one building, the Louvre, and I'm going to solve the problem of how can you cover the Louvre in one short episode by focusing on the very French aspects of it. It's a French palace, or was. It's played a significant role in French history. It has paintings in it, which highlight various moments of the history of France and it has a whole section given over to French artists. So yes, we'll have a little look at some of the other very famous things but the main focus will be all things French. I hope that you'll be joining me for that and for the moment I'd just like to thank you very much indeed for listening. Merci bien and to say goodbye. Au revoir. (laughs) 